You're listening to Soul Radio. Welcome to Channel 33, a new podcast series presented by Soul. I'm your host, Yusra Al-Baghir. Throughout this series, I'll be speaking with creators who are shaping the cultural landscape and raising the bar in their respective fields. Delving into their personal journeys, we'll explore the essence of creative work and the ingredients necessary for a mortal impact. Aya Tameti is my guest on this week's show. The Nigerian-American activist is known as the co-founder of Black Lives Matter but has been immersed in community work for nearly two decades. Her upbringing in Phoenix, Arizona has shaped the grassroots organizing that led her to become the executive director for the Black Alliance for Just Immigration, and later to set up Black Lives Matter with Patrice Cullors and Alicia Garza while living in Brooklyn, New York. We spoke to Aya from her home base in LA in the midst of a critical transition. She will no longer be known by her professional name, Opal Tometi, but is now sharing her intimate Yoruba name, Aya, with the world. Speaking to Aya was a stark reminder that the work never stops. It's far from an external professional endeavor, but a deeply spiritual and personal part of self-actualization. So much love goes into community work, and it requires resilience and insistence that respect is the birthright of all. Aya is the Yoruba word for joy, and that has always been a word that stayed with me. It's been a secret source of strength for me, and I wanted to be more unapologetic about what it is that, one, I'm about, what I'm aiming for, which is joy for all of us, but I also wanted to be really honest about the kind of temperament and spirit that I'm bringing to the work because I'm connected with my ancestors. I'm connected with my my culture. I have so much pride in it. It's really more of a congruent expression of who I am, right? And of where I'm going and how I want to get there. And that's and that's the sum of all the experiences that you've had, right? And that for me makes me want to just go all the way back to growing up in Arizona in a Christian Nigerian American family. And looking back, what experience sort of stand out to you as formative and as so integral to to Ayatemedi? I love this question and I appreciate you taking it way back because I think so often we take for granted the intimate stories, the personal experiences that really shape our lives and the lens that we bring to, you know, who we are today. And as a young person coming of age in Phoenix, Arizona with Nigerian, you know, immigrant parents, my life was so shaped by the fact that we were you know, quote unquote other, (laughs) right? But I didn't feel like that. The way that the texture of my life was just so Nigerian on a day-to-day that yes, when I went to school, I was, you know, maybe I smelled a little bit of our food or I had like, you know, sometimes, you know, tattered clothing because we grew up poor, you know, like we were just newly arrived immigrants and, you know, so we had our sense of challenges, but my parents instilled such a pride in our culture and who we are. And we had this beautiful, tight-knit Nigerian immigrant community. I thought it was so big. 
but in hindsight, looking back, we were a really small set of people. But it, kind of felt, <laughs> it felt big. It was loud. It, it was, was loud. loud. It was all consuming. Our food, our clothes, our music, everything was so vibrant. Um, it was so intoxicating. And it was what I knew at home, right? And I, what I knew at home, and it's what I knew on the weekends. But what I quickly began to learn as I got older wiser, got to see things more clearly, was that our people weren't necessarily being respected all the time. Our folks weren't necessarily being embraced and celebrated. We were celebrating ourselves. We took pride in ourselves. I was in awe of the fact that whenever a new family arrived, we were right there. We took care of them. You know, the system, we weren't relying on the system. We were like, we look out for each other, no matter what the system says about us. We're going to be there for each other. And then when people did get into hardship, be it job loss, be it immigration issues, immigration detention or deportation, which had happened with, with some of my aunts and uncles, unfortunately. What I found was that the Nigerian immigrant community once again stepped up. You know, they stepped up. One of my aunts, sadly, was a widow. She had four daughters. And she was doing what she needed to do to make ends meet. She got caught up in a bad situation was literally taken away from her her daughters, sent to prison, then immigration detention, and then eventually deported. And her kids were minors and they were US citizens. They'd been in, you know, they'd born and raised in this country. This is was their home. And the kids stayed, right? They were in middle school and high school, they were minors, and they stayed behind or they were left behind. Um, but the aunties and uncles in our community took care of them. They took them in. They all had a place to live. They got to stay together if they wanted to stay together. Or sometimes they would, you know, want to rotate homes and that happened. But largely all four sisters stayed together. And they had food, they had holiday gifts, they had everything that every other kid had in our community. And they never went without. And so the children didn't have to go to foster care which normally is what happens in those situations in the U.S., um, and particularly Arizona with, with, with immigrants who have kids that are U.S. citizens. If they tear the par families apart, the kids usually stay behind, if that's the case, and they're sent to foster care or group homes. And, you know, then there's other forms of, you know, hardship and tragedy as a result of those experiences. But our community essentially said, Nope, <laughs> we're not doing that to ours. And so you you mentioned the you know, situation with your aunt, and it sounds like it still sounds like it it really it impacted you and touched you. And and I wanted to know if that was what kind of spurred on your political organizing, or if it was something else. You know, were there moments like this that made you realize how important community and political organizing is? Yes, the real tragic scenario of my aunt and her daughters being torn apart was what shaped me in getting more and more active in all sorts of, of, of activism. I didn't know exactly what was going on there or the nuances because I was, I too was in high school and my friend was literally separated from her mom and came to live with us, but I knew that it wasn't right. And I knew that I would do anything to stop the pain that my friend was going through. You know, she the tears, the anguish, the confusion. And all I could think about was the fact that this could be me, 
just a few years before, my parents were also fighting their immigration and, and deportation situations. But having a friend come to live with me, sharing the bed for, for our, I think it was our senior year of high school and just kind of being there literally side by side with her as she was going through this and trying to figure out like, okay, what job is she going to get to make ends meet when she goes to college and all of that and to provide for her younger sisters. Those types of things began to um, essentially ignite in me a, a bit of conviction around our people and their family units and their ability to, to be with each other and care for each other and really question uh, what kind of system we were living in that would find it okay <laughs> to rip families apart. Um, besides that, what also began to shape me was the fact that my dad was for a time a mechanic, but then also started to sell used cars, put pieces together, sell used cars, all the immigrants who needed cars, he'd figure out a way to get them cars. So that was like his tangible contribution to our community in many ways. And he got to a point where he was able to put, put together a car for himself. And it was this mustard colored Mercedes Benz. And he keeps getting pulled over by the police. Like he time and time again, for his skin color, not for driving fast, not for weaving in out of traffic. And this is Phoenix, Arizona, mind you, this is a very conservative, anti-immigrant, anti-black, you name it, anti-people of color. And so after being pulled over, I think, gosh, a dozen times, maybe more, there was a time where he was pulled over and then I think three or four other squad cars pull up and he was just like, enough. He was frightened, he was scared out of his mind not only for all the reasons we know about now in terms of police brutality and you know just the, the violence and the extrajudicial killings, but maybe that doesn't happen, but they decide, oh, your accent, <laughs> you're not from here. His situation could have been, well, you're deported. Well, you're detained. Well, you know, for some other reason. So he decided, you know what? The risk is too much. It's too great. I'm going to get rid of this car having this Mercedes is not worth it. He ended up getting this like beat up white truck and just kind of trying to fly under the radar and wasn't stopped as much. This is what, these are the experiences that the people that I love the most are having. And, you know, fast forward to 9-11 and my best friend from Jordan was being profiled. Her family was being profiled. Her family was being seen as the other, the enemy, the terrorist, the, you know, all of that. And I saw firsthand how her family had to perform patriotism, you know, show a certain side of themselves in a very kind of caricature manner in order to be safe. And that too informed me, right? I, I got to, I essentially expanded my sense of, of what is race and racism in the U.S. just by virtue of, you know, my the people that I was around, right? So... All, yeah, all those experiences as a young person began to shape me. And as I went off to college, um, I took all of that with me and began to organize more formally and get more and more involved with you know, various issues because I was at the University of Arizona living essentially on the U.S.-Mexico border and getting to witness other types of hardship and different things firsthand. So. So it sounds like it's been kind of an unveiling of this American identity and who gets to be a part of it and who's excluded, right? 
and that manifesting as an impetus for what came to be Black Lives Matter. So I wanted, I really want to just go to that moment in 2013 when you came together and decided to formally trademark B of M and make the website and just everything that kind of led up to that moment. So 2013, I can quite literally imagine where I was when I heard that George Zimmerman was being acquitted for the murder of Trayvon Martin. I, at the time, was the executive director of a national immigrant rights organization for Black people, um, working with African-Americans and Black immigrants and refugees. So I was already, you know, engaged, already doing my, you know, my thing, organizing in the community. But I knew that this moment was different and that something bigger needed to be done. I had just watched the film Fruitvale Station, which is the story of Oscar Grant in Oakland, California, being killed by police um, on New Year's. And I watched that film. I was feeling so raw, so emotional, walked out of the movie theater and then saw the texts and the tweets that were saying that George Zimmerman was being acquitted. It broke my heart that his family would have to live with this verdict. And they essentially were declaring that even in this court case, Trayvon Martin's life didn't matter. And it broke my heart. I have a young, I have two younger brothers, um, the youngest of whom was 14 years old at the time. And I could only imagine that my 14 year old brother would hear the story, would be marked by it because this was like the story of that time. And that he, my other little, you know, kid, my, my god kids, my cousins, all, you know, people that I love would hear this story and think that this was okay and that the adults let it slide. And I broke down and I knew I needed to do more. And so I went online just like everybody else and saw what was essentially a love note to Black people that Alicia Garza, you know, fellow co-founder, co-creator of Black Lives Matter wrote on Facebook. Something to the effect of, you know, Black people, I love us, our lives matter. Patrice Cullis, who fellow co-creator, I actually didn't know her at the time, but she goes underneath the comment section and she goes, hashtag Black Lives Matter. And, you know, I'm online and I'm seeing what they're doing. And I'm like, huh, there was something about it that just hit me. So I call Alicia and say, hey, I saw this thing. You know, I'm looking at my, you know, looking at the computer. I'm seeing this thing. I don't know what the plan is, but I want to build it. <laughs> I'm like, we need to build it. Something bigger than what we are doing individually needs to happen. And she was already community organizing Patrice as well. We were already doing our thing. Um, but I knew something bigger needed to come together and they did too. So she's like, yes, bet, go, <laughs> you know, do what you want to do. You know, like, and, and so I go by blacklivesmatter.com. I start our Facebook page, Twitter, you know, IG, do the, you know, do all the social media handles. And I then send a mass email blast to a bunch of our community organizer friends and say, Hey, I know you all are doing your respective organizing from housing, you know, to jobs to, you know, they're, they're working on a number of different issues, but let's start using this banner as a collective of Black Lives Matter and start sharing your stories of what you're doing, your work is to make Black Lives Matter. And let's start, you know, essentially rallying behind this and plugging people who've been um, awakened by this not guilty verdict into community organizing, because that is the only way <laughs> that we're going to change the world and ensure that this type of thing no longer happens again. We need to, you know, essentially start pointing people to a solution. 
sadly, as you know, more and more cases, more and more situations began to happen. So about a year later, sadly, Mike Brown in, in Ferguson, Missouri, was killed by Officer Darren Wilson. That was a, a very politicizing moment for a lot of people. And it was an important moment in that we got to witness what it looks like for a community of people who were righteous in their mourning and in their rage rise up. And I remember going online and, you know, specifically Twitter and seeing people live stream what was happening in Ferguson. And all of us were kind of like, we need to figure out how to go. We need to support. And I remember hearing Patrice say, hey, like, I want to actually mobilize what we'll call a Black Lives Matter freedom ride. Patrice said that, Darnell Moore in New York said it, I was living in New York at the time. And we're like, yes, let's use this Black Lives Matter platform that, you know, the social media that we started and all that that I created, let's start using these tools to mobilize, you know, hundreds of Black people who want to go there. And that's what they did. They just basically made use of, of the resources, raised money, people self-organized, and, you know, about 500 Black people converged in less than... I don't know, less than two weeks of organizing, figured out how to get to Ferguson and showed up and stood alongside the people and marched and cried and had services and spiritual experiences and all sorts of strategized, had all sorts of experiences with them. And it birthed what is now known as the, as the Black Lives Matter Global Network. Um, because coming out of the Black Lives Matter Freedom Ride, people were saying, well, we know Ferguson is everywhere. Something more needs to be done. Um, yes, there are existing organizations and networks, but there was something that was unique about the experience of gathering together in that moment that people said, we want something special, something unique to this time. And we want something that's also very inclusive because mind you, the people who really were at the helm of organizing were, were Black queer, trans folks, people who were, you know, people who were immigrants, some folks who were undocumented, you know, people who really threw down in that time had all kinds of identities, right? And so there was something very important about saying we need a space that reflects who it is that we really are. And that was incredibly powerful. And so folks, you know, went back home and essentially started chapters across the country. And um, began to mobilize and organize around a number of other cases and a number of other issues. And, you know, fast forward to, to today. I mean, BLM, Black Lives Matter as a banner, means it means a lot of different things to different people. And so it, what does it mean to you? Black Lives Matter means to me that Black people deserve respect, <laughs> justice and to live a life full of dignity and a life where we actually thrive. Um, those three words were so powerful to me because they read both as like a kind of internal mantra of sorts and a, something that's just very in the spirit, very intimate, but also read as like a demand. Like we're putting this on the society, we're going to name the injustice that is occurring and we're gonna demand a better world, right? We're gonna demand that we have what is what is due to us. Um, what I think is important to remember about that time is that talking about racism wasn't the thing. There was this sense that you have a black president, shut up, everything's cool. 
you know what I mean? Like, and, <laughs> and there was also this notion that like, we're, we should be colorblind or like, if we talk about it, like, don't really like name black specifically. It's like people of color, it's more broad. So there was all of this stuff, all of this like baggage around naming racism because we were supposed to be silent and just celebrate the fact that we had a black president. But the truth of the matter was that everyday Black people weren't necessarily experiencing the benefits or the perks of, of that, you know, like whatever they thought would happen just because you have a Black president. It does not translate to undoing years and years of white supremacy and racist logic and racist systems. It just doesn't. And so first and foremost, BLM was a discourse amongst ourselves, a reminder that whether or not the larger society will validate our lives, we will do it within ourselves. And so that was how we rallied first amongst ourselves to do a black only black led ride to Ferguson. And then a few months later, there was a multiracial, multicultural ride to Ferguson. So I think that's important to remember that we show up for ourselves, but we have systems that benefit off of devaluing Black lives, period. And anybody can participate in that system. You know, anybody can be part of what I, I've been calling multiracial white supremacy. You know, like it does not necessarily require you to look like one thing, but the result, the impact continues to be the degradation, the devaluation, the, the disposability of Black lives. I mean, on that note, what do you think about where we are now, 2021, where the movement is, but also where, where the world is in terms of Black lives and systemic violence against Black people? So I think I sit at a very unique vantage point um, because I get to witness a variety of ways in which people are finally joining in to the struggle, right? Um, because, you know, as a co-founder of Black Lives Matter, I get to, you know, get certain kinds of phone calls or get in the know around certain initiatives. So I'm getting to hear and see a lot of different things. And so to me, that keeps me hopeful. Um, the mobilizations that took place last year as a result of, oh God, once again, another extremely violent and disturbing killing of an unarmed Black man in this country, George Floyd, you know, people saw what took place, right, in Minneapolis. They saw this young man. It, it's because I get to, I am, like, tasked with talking about certain people, you know, certain people and, and death. It just, every now and again, it'll hit me, like, I'll say their name and I'm like, they're a person. They're like a person, a father, a son, a brother, a, you know, people love this man, like fiercely loved this man. And you don't get to a man being killed in broad daylight in such a manner without other forms of dehumanization of Black people in every, everywhere else, right? But what was very important about this period, right, last year, where we were, some people were home, some people were, you know, if you had the privilege of being home, um, was that people who maybe had a little bit of a conscience around what was going on and said, we normally would have wanted to be out at the BLM rallies, but we're at work or we're busy with the kids or we're doing something else. I think with witnessing the brutal murder of George Floyd, they realized that they 
could not sit idly by anymore. They realized that their apathetic behavior, their actions of not participating and advocating um, was, was part of the problem. They realized that. And so they got involved. They went out in the streets. And so that's why we did see the largest mobilizations in history, right? We, we have all these reports that say this is the largest mobile, you know, these, this is the largest movement in history, not only in the US, but literally around the world, globally. It ignited grassroots movements around the world. So it was like, you have a history of civil rights movements in Brazil, but it was like, okay, this banner is contemporary and it's all encompassing, let's go for it. Exactly. And that to me was, and is moving, it's right, it is exactly what was required and is required. And a lot of commitments were made during that time. And my main hope now is that people continue to pay attention, to uh, deliver on their commitments, right? If it's businesses who made commitments, we need the substantive and walk the talk. You said something last year, are you walking it now? What did you think of the Black Square stuff? I honestly felt that there are actions that are being called for and sometimes people make up these calls to action without consulting people who've been steeped in the work for decades. And what would have been nice is consult, <laughs> consult some people, <laughs> check in and see what are the demands, what are the needs that we really have, and let's collaborate on a call to action that makes sense. And while I thought there was something symbolic, I am somebody who's not about mere symbolic action, but substantive action, right? And so there was, there was some sets of actions behind the scenes, I think, around it, but it really got lost in translation. And a lot of people did not do anything after the Black Square. It felt like a get out of jail card for so many companies. It's like, oh, we put up the Black Square, we're good, you know? Yes. And it was. Um, and then thankfully there were so many other companies who said, well, you know what, we're going to do deep internal work. And you know, not even that they said that they were going to do it from the top down, but their employees called them to task. Demanded it. <laughs> they yes. demanded it, right? They said enough is enough. You know, this workplace is not inclusive. There's no equity here. You know, the diversity of the actual company or, or the product is not reflected in the leadership. And so people really pushed internally to have their their companies um, or the businesses that they are maybe employed at reflect what their values are. So that I think has been also powerful because what people were reminded of was that they have their own sense of agency or they have agency wherever they may be and that they have a duty to speak up wherever they might be. They need to make their workplace better. They need to make their schools better. They need to make, you know, they, they, they can do that. Not even that they need to, but they can do that. And if they want things to change, that's what's gonna be required. And what happens is when you do that alongside two, three, four, five, a cadre of people, then you might have some influence and then you might see some change because then you know, you're, you're flexing that muscle together and you build your power what really strikes me is just how emotionally taxing it must be because what you're doing is humanizing victims of, of extreme brutality. And in that process, you yourself are confronted with how 
violent and cruel these acts are and and so what do you do to keep healthy because it's just it's just you know it's incredibly sad yeah it is it really is incredibly sad and i um had not necessarily imagined my life taking this particular um journey uh and taking this turn i you know as i shared at the beginning of our discussion with I just love people. I just love us. I'm just like here to celebrate our folks. And, and in that it's led me down this journey of like, we've got to protect us. If we're going to celebrate us, we got to be alive for that celebration. You know, we got to be alive to, to see the various ways that we can express and contribute and, and just be living peaceful lives. And in doing this kind of work where we're confronted with extreme violence, um, that is state sanctioned essentially right um and not only have i seen and witnessed this type of injustice in the us but i have been able to you know have the privilege of, of, of having my passport and being able to travel and and bear witness and collaborate and, and work with groups if it's in france or the uk or germany and so i've heard stories that are similar the important thing has been to sit and look people in the eyes, sit and bear witness to their humanity, sit and remind them that people care. And so I think that there's something important about just sitting and taking a moment, taking stock, being with people. Uh, also, I will go home and take a beat and cry and write and journal and, and reflect and, and do those things with myself and exercise and do my own self-care routines because that too is part of how I get to show up year in and year out. The way I stay in it is by being connected with my loved ones and my friends and having a good laugh and being reminded of that joy that is our birthright. So I find a lot of hope when I'm just with other people who also give a damn who remind me like you're not crazy for giving a damn <laughs> right like we're we're not we're not the crazy ones actually this system is morally bankrupt there are better ways to do this whole thing um another world is possible we have to build it we have to fight for it we have to like you know work towards it um but it is possible and so i stay you know very grounded in my sense of hope with that and what what i find society does is it ends up like idolizing community leaders in a way that can be detrimental to the work, right? So you're showered with praise, you're invited to red carpet events, you're nominated for awards. And it sounds like you really have to work to remember, like, these are my people, this is my community. This stuff, yeah, it's nice, but what does it matter, you know? Yes. Oh my gosh, that is, it's such an interesting time that we're living in. First of all, there's like celebrity culture and social media and how accessible everybody seems and feels as a result of social media. So there's that. Um, but I think to what you're speaking about, we do get now for the, which is a unique time where we're finally getting some um, bit of recognition or accolades. It's unique, right? Because some of our elders and mentors are, 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 you know, they're talking to us and they're like, we never got that. Like they were not seen as people to be celebrated. They were not, you know, like they were just 
doing the work. They were enemies. They were the they were the problem. And you know, we still are seen as enemies, let's be clear. Like people don't know how deep the work really is and what is really required. So they may not give us the awards if they did. Yeah, 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 yeah. What I know I am personally grappling with is the fact that I literally thought I was going to be doing this work in obscurity. And truth be told, back in gosh, my some of my early days of organizing specifically around immigrant rights in Phoenix, Arizona, I maxed out my credit cards to volunteer. I was not being paid a dime. I used my student loans to pay for my for my living for several several months just to work 70 80 hours for the movement because I thought that the anti-immigrant policies of that time were the worst things to ever happen in in the US. So I and I thought they were the most important issues to be organizing around you know during that time. And so I was willing to sacrifice and and live really uh struggle life uh, because I believed that we deserve better. And, you know, I was paying to work, basically. I was paying to work. And so, all, you know, I share that just to say, like, I don't know many of us who do the type of work that we do for awards and accolades. We're doing it because of the conviction, because of things that we've experienced in our, our personal lives or our loved ones have experienced. And we do it more from sacrifice and now that there is this visibility, it does cause um, a lot of questions or, you know, a lot of eyes to be raised, a lot of concern. Um, and I think as a, as, as movements, as social movements, we have to grapple as a collective with what it means to be more visible and what it is that we want and how do we harness that visibility for more good for our movements, for more progress within our movements. We are human beings at the end of the day. There is a lot of um, psychology that we might not be taking account of. Maybe we're talking about sociology, but we're not necessarily talking about the, the psychology and the ego and the the competitive nature of certain things, even though you're like, it's social justice. This is like the most righteous, peaceful space. It's the best um, facade to hide narcissism or self-interest for it. So if, you know, if we look at saviorism as an issue cross-culturally, you know, not just white saviorism. How how do you maintain integrity when you're building a movement of this scale? And especially when there's so much critique around how organizations profit off of justice issues. And obviously BLM hasn't been exempt from that. So how do you maintain integrity when you're building a movement and, and constantly questioning your intentions and, and growing through that? Honestly, uh, that is, I mean, I feel like such a layered and important question. And I think we're having to experiment with that every single quarter, every single season. I don't think that there's a time where that is not, especially because of how visible and how much money is, is now involved in our movements. I think that is something that we're constantly grappling with. And you said the word integrity. And for me, when I reflect on maintaining movements that have clear values and principles and, um, you know, really walk the talk, it requires a set of agreements within. It requires people feeling that sense of like, we signed up for this and we're getting this, or this is how we're going to execute on this. And 
oftentimes what happens and what you know what we're even up against right now is you you set up an infrastructure but the world is changing so quickly so many crises are happening and you're building within a crisis so there's no real perfect <laughs> or pure movement or organization or even recipe because we are living in a you know we're living in a new time um you know we do have lessons from our elders but there is no perfect recipe for how to do it. And I think as a result, that means there has to be those spaces for honest conversations, collective reflection. Okay, we did it like this last time. Did it work? How did we feel about that? Okay, do we need to refine our strategy as a result? Do we need to bring in other people as a result? You know, there has to be that space for real, honest reflection, um, candor in our conversations around what took place. I also feel like what, happens in so many movements is that people don't necessarily feel appreciated for their contribution because what happens in our society is that certain types of contributions are more celebrated than others. Like we still need the person who cooks at home for the organizers when they get back or like the person who's taking care of the kids or the childcare so that we can have the meeting. We still need the person to prep, you know, first aid kit for the activists that might get tear guests. Like we still need all of these other team members, role, you know, roles on the team for the team to be effective. And I think what is the challenge is that not every role is rated or appreciated in the same way. And that does become a problem. And, and how do you deal with controversy when it comes up? Because it obviously does, you know, with every with every movement. But when there's talk about funds and questions and how do you deal with that? And how do you uh, deal with that both internally in terms of supporting your fellow, you know, teammates and the people that you work with, but also you yourself kind of take stock without self-censoring or self-vilifying, you know? Yeah. Honestly, <laughs> so much of the work that we do is internal. I think we have to do the personal work, the spiritual work, the emotional work. I have a therapist that I work things out with. And um, I have a series of, of mentors and elders who I check in with regularly and who give me advice or a hard pushback. But honestly, when there are those challenges that have to do with group dynamics or things that are happening in the public eye or, or questions that are being raised about the ethical handling of XYZ, the way that I tend to deal with that is to a certain degree with a grain of salt. Because what I find is that there's a lot of sensationalism around our activities now because Whereas in older times, we would have been in obscurity and kind of just doing what we needed to do. The stakes are higher. The use of technology and social media tools allows people certain access. And so they think they know everything that's going on. But like even right wing people who are trying to harm the movement also see what's going on or also can kind of get information about us. And so I've tended to kind of take things with a lighter hand, as opposed to believing everything that I hear even. And if something does come up that does alarm me or concern me, I'm one of those people who's like, let's go direct to the source. <laughs> I'll pick up the phone. Let's talk about it. <laughs> let's talk about it. Let's have a real honest discussion. What actually took place here? Where is this? Or, you know, like what happened? 
And I think being direct is key. And if I feel good about what they said, cool. If I need to corroborate it, we'll do that and then keep it moving. Um, but most of the time, there's so much work to be done that it doesn't feel wise to belabor the point. If there is a challenge that needs to be dealt with, let's da- deal with it and like keep it moving. Because the truth is we are out, like the, the, the enemy is, has more resources, has, has, has years, centuries, literally, of building what they want. And we're the underdog. So we don't have we don't have the luxury of time or money or even people power to do the, the monumental task that we have at hand. So we have to be very discerning about what warrants our attention and move from there. It sounds to me that it's about community within community. That that's what's helped you along the way. Relationships. Yeah. Yeah. At the end of the day, it's like real relationships, but also maintaining a vision, being clear about that vision and and keeping focused and knowing that. I mean, you said I've been recently thinking I'm taking this a whole other way, but indulge me for just a moment. But I've recently been thinking about the fact that the work that I'm committed to also has to do with the continent, right, with Africa and with black peoples around the world. And I think oftentimes about the fact that a lot of the people that I care about and I love and I'm committed to aren't even on social media. A large share of the world is not plugged up like this. They They aren't tapped in this. This does not even matter to them. They're just trying to get by. So if I'm being really honest about the type of world I'm trying to build and live in, it's a world where they're not living a squalor too. You know, like I see that you know, I believe in Ubuntu. I I am because you are, we are because I, like, I really feel that. I feel the interconnected nature of the work that we're doing. But if I get too caught up in this version of it and in this drama of it, I miss the bigger picture and the larger vision for the world that I believe we have, right? So yeah, I just try to keep some of this stuff in perspective and almost like, I don't even want to say stay humble, but like stay clear on what it is that, what are we really going for? I want to go back to you and to this next stage and to this new chapter. We don't have much time left. So I just want to go back to what you're doing. I mean, you've just started a production company and you're moving into the storytelling space in a formal way. I think creativity and storytelling and messaging has always been a part of what you do and what you brought to, to the movement. But now it's formalized in in your day to day. Um, tell me about it. I'm so excited. Tell me more about it, and tell me w- what's next for you. You know, I think the movement has its own momentum, and and that's gonna move with the times. But what about you? What where is your intentionality in the next phase for you? Yeah, I'm so excited for this season of my life. Right, I'm always excited about something, but but in particular. Right now, what I feel is happening for me is I'm in this full circle moment, right? So yes, I'm going back to Aya. I'm going a little deeper. What a lot of folks don't know is I have my master's in communication studies and almost had my master's in documentary filmmaking. And I used to walk around with the camera in my hand all the time and record all the things. And now we have phones, so I document in that way. But I've always been 
because I'm so curious about people, I've always been intrigued by the types of stories that we have, that we've lived. Um, I see us as the protagonists in our own, you know, in our own lives and in in the world. And so I'm I'm invested in sharing and amplifying more stories in a more formalized way, if you will. So I started a production company and we've been incubating and I'm excited because these are stories that people may not expect me to be interested in. (laughs) And these are stories that to me celebrate the expansive nature of who we are. And they also reflect the types of people that I've met literally around the world. Um, So I'm very excited. We're doing some stuff that's scripted. We're doing some stuff that's non-scripted. We're doing some stuff in the digital space. And I'm really excited about that. I also have my other nonprofit, my new nonprofit, Diaspora Rising, that is a social justice organization as well. And is really, you know, an extension of my commitment to Black Lives Matter. But what we're doing with Diaspora Rising is really leaning in to both, you know, the media space and the new media tools in order to tell stories about the activations that are happening with the diaspora, but also the types of concerns that the diaspora has. As a collective, what Diaspora Rising is doing is harnessing the voice and experience and expertise of the diaspora in solidarity with our friends, with our family on the ground. So I believe that the work that we'll be doing in the next phase is that real deep internal institution building work, ensuring that we have the fortitude to build a larger kind of society that we deserve. I'm looking forward to see what Aya does with her new production company and also her new advocacy hub, Diaspora Rising, and how this era of consolidated identity will show in her public-facing work. Thank you for listening to Channel 33. For more on our series, go to soul.digital. You can also follow us on Instagram by going to at souldxp and at yusra al-bagr. You're listening to Soul Radio. 